Hope you're doing well. My name is Logan. I'm the 20 plus pastor here at River Valley. Excited to dive in again to part two of our Culture Convos Night Questions for God. If you did not hear part one, I'd encourage you to check that out. We got to hear from our executive pastor, Chris Book, as well as Clint Reddy talking about the will of God, why we believe what we believe, some different perspectives. Um, I just encourage you to check that out before you dive into this one. But if you've already heard this and you're listening for part two, this is our uh, interview with Dr. Alan Tennyson from North Central University. It was an awesome conversation that I had with him. We talked about things like the Old and New Testament, hypocrisy, homosexuality, prayer, and the book of Revelation. And so lean in. It's going to be awesome. We'll start with conversations that we had, and then we'll go to questions that we got from the audience. Enjoy. One of the things that, that I think people, as they discover and as they read the Bible, they start to see a difference in maybe the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's something that, you know, in Bible school we'll, we'll talk about. We have Old Testament classes, New Testament classes. They're, they're separate books for, for reasons. But one of the things that I, I find is a struggle for people, whether that be a new believer or somebody who's, who's not a Christian or even people who are strong in, in their faith, is how do I reconcile a God that seems to be so full of wrath in the Old Testament and a God who seems to be so full of love in the New Testament. And obviously the whole picture of the Bible is one, but when you look at it, you know, in in parts, it can feel like there's a very different God that we're reading about. What would you say to somebody who has that question or that maybe idea of, of what the book in its entirety is? Yeah, I think that part of that is, I mean, one, I think that's just a mistake. But I think it's a mistake that comes from a culture that has told us that's how the text is read, and then that's all we see when we come to it. I mean, the truth is, in the Old Testament, the big accusation against God is not that he's harsh, it's that he's too merciful. The complaint that comes against God again and again and again in the Old Testament is why are you taking so long to respond to people's needs by not punishing the guilty? That's the real accusation against God from the people in that culture. We're really missing the story here. I mean, story after story after story in the Old Testament is a God who is just crazy about people and cares for them and wants even those who are wrong to turn right, and then he'll forgive them. Can I give you just a few examples? I mean, just that we sometimes miss. You know, Hagar. Hagar is a, a, a slave. She's the slave of Abraham. And Abraham gets her pregnant because they cannot have a child. And God has promised them a child. and No child is coming. And they're like, well, we got to help God in this. And so they try to do what would have been an ancient form of surrogacy that also would have raised Hagar's position in the family, at which point Hagar gets mistreated by Sarah because she does get pregnant. Hagar goes out into the wilderness, and this is Genesis chapter 16. She's out in the wilderness, and she has just run. Here's a pregnant woman alone in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord finds her. And the angel of the Lord says to her, Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? And what's interesting is she knows where she's come from, and she answers that question, I'm running away from Sarah. She doesn't answer the question, where is she going? Because she's not going anywhere, she's just running. And the angel says to her, I want you to turn around, I want you to go back, because the child you're going to give birth to, I'm going to make the father of many nations. And what's so incredible is it's the exact same promise that God gave to Abraham. God gives to Hagar. And the thing that's amazing in the story is that Hagar is the definition of a minor character. If you cut out all of the omissions of Hagar in the Bible, uh, the story just continues on. You know, if you cut Abraham out, you're like, what happened? You cut Hagar out, and you're like, I didn't even know she was there. 
She's the definition of a minor character. And Hagar herself is amazed that God would say this to her. And here's what she actually says. She's the first person in the Bible to give God a name. You know, God is called by cultural names, Elohim. You know, to Moses, he reveals himself as what we would say Yahweh. But she's the first person to name God. And the what she calls God is Elroy. But you didn't know God's name was Elroy. But what it means is the God who sees. Because she says, God has seen me. And what's the name of her son, Ishmael? God has heard. God sees. God hears. And that's how people experience God, is that he's a God who sees everybody. A God who pays attention. A God who notices. Uh, another great story uh, is um, the story, in fact, this is probably for me the greatest story for what's the God of the Old Testament like? It's Jonah. Are you it's okay if I preach for just a minute? Okay, Jonah, we, you know, when I say Jonah, what do you think of? Jonah and the? Yeah, okay, that's not the story at all, right? I, I mean, it's just, you know, sometimes we have these stories that, that we're so used to with these names because they're the stories we tell children, and it's like, you know, Jonah and the whale, Goldilocks and the three bears, you know. I mean, we just think of them as these kids' stories. Well, in the story, Jonah is told by God, I want you to go and I want you to preach against Nineveh. Who's Nineveh? Nineveh is the worst city in the world. Uh, If you study the Assyrians, they're like the Nazi Germany of the ancient world. They are horrible. They are horrific. God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell these people, I'm going to destroy them. And you're thinking as a reader from the ancient world, it's about time. They need to go down. They're horrible people. They mistreated. They actually recorded all of their human rights abuses because that's what they wanted to be known for. How many pregnant women whose babies they slaughtered in front of them by ripping it out of their belly? They wrote that part down because they wanted to be known for that, right? And so Jonah goes the opposite direction. And in the story, you don't initially know why Jonah flees because it doesn't tell you. It just goes in the opposite direction. Gets on a boat. It's headed away from Nineveh. Storm comes up. Jonah finally admits that the storm's here because of me. He can't get away from God. So the sailors say, what should we do? And the right answer would be, well, turn around. God's not going to let me go. Jonah's like, nope, throw me in the water and let me die. He really does not want to go to Nineveh, right? I mean, he's choosing drowning now as his other option. So they throw him in the water, and now a fish comes and swallows him. God is not letting him go, right? You're not going to get out of this that easy, Jonah. I need you to go to Nineveh. So finally, in the belly of the fish, Jonah prays and says, okay, I'll finally do it, God. So God coughs him up. You know, the fish coughs him up. Jonah goes, goes to the city, preaches. 30 days, God's going to destroy you. Bye, guys. And then goes outside to wait. And then this incredible thing happens in Jonah 3. It says that the people believed Jonah. Nineveh repented of their sins. And then it's one of those beautiful lines in all of Scripture. You find it more than once. But Jonah 3.10, and God relented. God decided not to destroy Nineveh. Then you come to chapter 4, because it's not over yet. Jonah's out on the hill waiting for God to destroy the city. Jonah's upset because it's not coming. And God says to Jonah, are you angry? And Jonah says to God, and this is the first time you as a reader, if you're reading this for the first time, that you actually find out why he fled, why those first two chapters, he would do anything rather than obey God. And he said, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh, 
because I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. I know that's how you are. What is he giving God? He's giving God God's character description that is repeated throughout the Old Testament. When God first forgives Israel in the Exodus, how does God reveal himself to Moses? I am a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. When the psalmists will pray to God, they'll quote this again. The prophets will quote this. It is the character description of God in the Old Testament. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He abounds in loving faithfulness. And what Jonah basically says to God is this. I knew if this is how you were to Israel, this is how you would be to everyone else. And I want to see Nineveh destroyed because they deserve it. And I knew that if they repented, you would forgive them because that's just how you are. That's not what I want. So in the story, A vine comes up and covers Jonah in the sun. God allows it to grow over him. And it says that Jonah loves the vine because it gives him shade. Then God kills the vine, right? And Jonah is now in the heat and he's not leaving. He's like having a staring contest with God. I told these people you were going to destroy them. I'm going to wait here until you do it. And God comes to Jonah and says, hey, are you angry about the vine? And Jonah says, I'm angry enough to die. You know, he's the most suicidal prophet in the Bible, right? I'm angry enough to die. And God says to Jonah, you care about this vine that you had nothing to do with. Why shouldn't I care about this city that has many inhabitants and many cattle as well? And what's interesting is we're never given Jonah's answer because it ends with God's question, as if that's the question God is giving to the reader. Think about the people that you hate most in the world. If I were to forgive them, if I were to change my mind of punishment because they repented, why shouldn't I get to care about those people? That's the Old Testament God. And it's the God that's found repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Wow, that's incredible. There's a question here that I think bridges into this really well. And it's a lot of Christians we have a moment of repentance. You know, for, for many people, it's saying a prayer or, or raising a hand or, you know, maybe that's baptism for some um, in the same moment. But oftentimes, as you mentioned in your first response, is there's a hypocritical idea about Christians. And I think the reason why people see Christians as hypocrites is because we repent of our sins maybe once, but then we continue to go on and sin over and over, and it's we take advantage maybe of the grace that God has extended us, and we often will maybe, you know, whether we preach it to our friends and our neighbors that we're taking advantage of the grace, I think we take advantage of it in our own mind, in our own life. What do you think God's response would be to that in the New Testament where we're living now? Because obviously God's response to a repentant nation was grace and mercy. But somebody who's <coughs> calling on the name of grace and mercy, but actually kind of spitting in the face of it, I feel like there's maybe a lot of people that are caught in that lie of hypocrisy, which then to someone who's not a believer would see that as there's a great example of why I'm not a Christian. How do we how do we reconcile that with the, the nature of what, what does God do to those people? What does God say about those people in today? 
Well, first, if you can, can I address the issue of hypocrisy? Absolutely. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but I think there are three reasons, not just three, but at least three that I can come up with where I think Christians get abused, accused of hypocrisy. One is, is what I would call a slow-growth Christian, which is to say that you can have someone who comes to faith, but where they come from may be from a position of such darkness in their own life that the work that God is doing in their hearts is a work that isn't evident to a lot of other people because of how they came in. You know, Paul will talk about the fruit of the Spirit, and, and what that whole phrase means is the whole idea, how do you know that, you know, a tree is an apple tree? Because it has apples. Yeah, I'm glad no one said lemons. You know, how do you know a lemon is a lemon tree? It has lemons. And how do you know that someone is a person of the Spirit? It's because they have the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul will identify as things like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. Well, those people who are now developing towards that are also exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. But it may be something that it is a really tiny fruit right now. They just weren't faithful at all last week. Now they're a little bit faithful. They're changing. And I think sometimes people get accused of hypocrisy unfairly because it's not a matter of someone being a hypocrite. It's a matter of someone experiencing what seems like a slow growth to us. And we're expecting them to act like the Holy Spirit has been at work in their heart for the last 20 years when it's been the enemy who's been at work destroying their life for the last 20 years. And you've got to give them time to heal. And you've got to rejoice. And, but, you know, as I'm a pastor who's worked with drug addicts, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been in a position where I'm routinely lied to by Christians because of what they have been like before they came to Christ. And that lying is just that mechanism, second nature, and you've just got to accept that. This is going to take time for this person to learn how to be a person of truth because they're so used to being self-defensive. And you got to so so one thing I think one one thing I think sometimes it's unfair. Other it's it's entirely fair. There are Christians who just struggle and they keep struggling with the same thing, again and again and again. And then I think there's a third reason we get accused of hypocrisy, and this is something that every Christian has to be concerned about, is that sometimes we get delivered from the things that used to hold us back only to fall into some other trap because we weren't paying attention. So, you know, I might say that, oh, drugs might have been my idol, right? I, I, I just, I, my life was controlled by drugs. I came to Jesus. It's no longer drugs anymore. In fact, God's called me. Now I'm in the ministry, but oh no, now the ministry has become my idol. And now I'm worshiping this the way that I used to worship drugs. And if I'm not doing something like this, I don't know who I am anymore. And, my, and I've fallen into another trap. And I think sometimes you find even leaders who suddenly seem like hypocrites. And I think sometimes it's not that it's something that was always there. They fell into a trap of I've avoided this, but I wasn't avoiding that. You know, I think of the Apostle Paul who says what? I have to subject myself daily to faithfulness. And Paul even admits, there are things in my life that God had to allow me to endure suffering just so I wouldn't get so puffed up with the success I was having. Paul recognizes there's this other trap. So what happens to a Christian who remains persistent in sin? And I think, is that your question yes, here? Yes. Uh, I think you have to say, look, on the one hand, 
there's no clear line where we're like, you know, Jesus said forgive 70 times 7. When you hit 491, you're done, buddy. You know, so keep count, right? Because what we would do is we would actually keep count. I can sin 17 more times, you know. I mean, that's, that's how we would work. Uh, there isn't some line like that. We don't know where someone is in their heart. We don't know where their struggle is. I don't know when sometimes when a sin has become an addiction and that now there has to be some help for this person that so far goes beyond their self-control. They're not in control anymore. At the same time, I can recognize when a person just ups and leaves and says, because I'll say this, I've had some people that I've worked with that there is a, if you're struggling with sin and you're a believer, one of the ways of solving the tension is just quit being a believer. And I've, I've, I've dealt with some people for whom the struggle was so deep in them and so hurtful that they just couldn't see a way out. But if I don't try to be a Christian anymore, well, then there's no more struggle. I'm just now fully given over to this. And there's always an immediate sense of peace and joy when that happens because in the short term, their struggle isn't there. Just the long term, you're going to have to live with the consequences of this decision. And so sometimes you say, well, what happens if someone leaves the church? What happens when the church has to tell someone to leave? You know, I, and again, I've been a pastor of drug addicts, so what happened in my church once when I realized I had someone attending church because they knew we had drug addicts in our congregation and they were trying to sell drugs to them in the parking lot? And now you're actually causing harm to people. And I'm sorry, I will, we, our church will always be open to you if you want to actually come, but if you're going to try and destroy people's lives, I can't have you be a part of this community. And so I think that there are times where we say something has become so radical that a person leaves or the church has to ask them to leave. But even then, the hope is still that they can come back. You know, this happens in, in Corinth. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about a man who he's, he's criticizing the church because the church has just gotten really wild. And what's so interesting is this is a bad church. You know, some people say, I wish we could be like the New Testament church. And I'm like, well, not the church in Corinth, because, you know, we're not sinning nearly enough, right? I mean, if we're going to be the Corinthians, that's why you'll never find a church that calls themselves the first Corinthian church. No, you know, (laughs) they are a bad church, right? Paul has to talk to them about quit doing the human trafficking. He does, because because, they're a bad church. And at one point, Paul actually says, there is a man in your church who is sleeping with his father's wife openly. And you and the church are rejoicing in this because you think it's a sign of how free you are in Christ that now this marital bond doesn't apply to you. And it's causing this huge rebuke among the Gentiles, the pagans, who are like, what are those people doing? Because that's offending the pagans. And what does Paul say? Kick the man out of the church. Here's how he says it. Hand him over to Satan so that he'll realize how severe his actions are and turn back to faith. So even in that context, Paul's saying that someone can return, but it gets so bad you have to ask them to leave so they can see the severity of how much they need to return. What happens in the second book, 2 Corinthians? Paul actually references a guy who's come back to you in repentance, and he says, receiving back again as a brother. The other cool thing is Paul calls this entire community saints even while they're sinning. Because in the faith, we're not defined just by the sum total of our worst actions. We're actually defined by our destiny. 
What has God called us towards? Who does God see us becoming? That's how God sees us now. So that I can look at someone who is committing horrific actions but has faith in Christ and I say, look, you are on the way. And I can still call you a saint. And I'm telling you, saint, you got to stop acting that way. But I'll still call you a saint because your identity isn't defined by the actions of your past. It's defined by the calling of your future. That's how God sees you. So that's how I need to see you. Hi, my name is James. Um, a little context. Um, a student here at the U and taking a class um, called Diverse uh, Christian Perspectives on Issues in the 21st Century. And for this last week's class discussion, um, it was on uh, homosexuality. And our discussion post was on that, but more broadly was um, one of the readings we had argued from a more liberal point of view that when conservative Christians interact with churches who do not believe that homosexuality is a sin, they change their mind. And conservative Christians would more land or use the Bible typically to argue that homosexuality is a sin. So my question is, how do you balance human experience and the interaction with other image bearers of God and the teachings and doctrines of scripture? Yeah, I think, in fact, I could, I could give you, do you want me to give you a very, like, geeky answer? Uh, there's this thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, and, and I'll do this to kind of, you know, this, this is good. I'm not going to test anyone over this, so you don't have to take notes. But it's a way that uh, in the 19, uh, 19 or 20th century, a theologian by the name of Albert Outler tried to try and explain to people how John Wesley did theology. So he argued that Wesley would look at four things when he determined what should the Christian faith teach. And it was what scripture says, what tradition of the church has said, what our own experience has shown us, and really what he meant by that was, is it something that's actually livable? And then the fourth thing was, is all of these reasonable? Like, have I interpreted scripture reasonably? Have I interpreted tradition reasonably? Am I interpreting my own experience reasonably? And what happened was that that got taken and people started to run away with that. So that now you had these kind of like four squares and each one gets one vote. And so you say, how should we respond to this? Well, scripture says this, but the other three say something different. Therefore, it's going to be the other three. And Outler would later say he wished he'd never coined the phrase Wesleyan quadrilateral because he said that's clearly not how Wesley did it. Scripture was always at the top. What does the Bible say? Well, how do I know that I'm interpreting the Bible correctly? Well, what does tradition say? How have other Christians interpreted this over the years? And finally, is this something that turns out to be livable? And then, have I been reasonable in the way that I've asked these questions? And so that's the way that we have actually should be doing, if we're going to do the quadrilateral, that's the way we should be doing it. I think for a lot of Christians, going to the specifics of your case, I think the problem is not that they read the Bible and it said this and they met someone who was gay and they're like, I didn't realize. I think the problem is, is they weren't viewing homosexuality from the scripture to begin with, but they were probably viewing it from a lens of homophobia. And then when they met someone who was gay, they realized, well man, persons who are gay are not who I thought they were. And the scripture for them was just a proof text anyway. They didn't actually understand why it was saying what it was saying. What's the point that's actually going on here? And I think that's been the problem for a lot of people, is it's not that they view homosexuality the way they do because the scripture talks about same-sex behavior as sin. 
but it's because they are afraid of people who engage in this behavior. And then when they meet someone, they realize you don't have to be. And so they were already doing it from the wrong place anyway, at least in my opinion. A follow-up on that just that I was thinking. Yeah. Um, I, I love that perspective because I do think that there's – I think you could probably find that in so many areas of Scripture. But to, to maybe – this is where, where my mind went and, went and maybe for um, some people connecting the dots. For somebody who is living in, let's say, a, a sin that is different than that, but maybe along the same vein of someone who struggles with pornography – you know, that person may be an amazing person and maybe even an amazing uh, boyfriend or girlfriend or, or an amazing mother or father or an amazing fill-in-the-blank. My, you know, my dad, he knew his grandfather to be his hero, but his mother, my grandmother, knew him to be abusive. And he was a different person to different people. And I think to the point of what Dr. Tennyson is talking about, I think there's a lot of times where we as Christians, whatever the issue is, we immediately will put everyone else in a box because of our previous experience or lack thereof previous experience. Maybe I've never known a drug addict, and so I assume that the drug addict is the person that I saw on the TV or the person that my friend told me about or the maybe I do know somebody, and that's the frame. I think a lot of times people struggle with that because of the word father. When they say, my father... He was a wicked man. I could never have a relationship with a God who's a creator than someone who calls himself father. And so I think that that issue, brilliantly brought up, is something that, you know, people who are full of faith, people who would call themselves Christians are victims of far too often because we put ourselves in different places and put other people in different places and boxes the way that we see the world, not the way that God sees the world. And the things that separate us from him are really what are his ailments and his, his recommendations and his laws. I don't want you to be separate from me. It's not about your relationship necessarily with others. It's about what is it that's separate from me? And then we say, oh, yeah, that person. And I think, you know, we look at the scripture, why are you pointing out a speck in someone else's eye when you have a log in your own? But am I, from a doctorate of theology, am I on somewhat of a right track here? Does that seem to resonate with maybe some of the issues that we go through, not just that one specifically? Well, I do think that's the case that we don't sum up somebody based on one particular behavior. But we can recognize how damaging a particular behavior is. And we learn to separate those two things. And again, I call out the behavior not because I'm rejecting you. It's because I care about you. And I've got to call out a damaging behavior because you matter. And because this isn't who you are called to be. This isn't who you were created to be. I don't know if that's kind of what you're yeah. – yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I want to keep getting to other questions. I just, mm-hmm. I just had that thought. So, uh, I'm Tommy. I'm not a student or anything. I'm just trying to figure it out. Um. <laughs> I, uh, I have a question about the immutability of God. Um, so the idea that God is ever-present and never-changing. Uh, how do you reconcile that with petitionary prayer? What's the point in asking God for things when he doesn't change? So how can he change his mind? Yeah, I think a couple the, of things. Sorry. Yeah, there yeah. were some big words there. Not all of us are big words people. Can you? I'm not um, a big word person. I Yeah. yeah well, you brought the big words today. <laughs> can you just put that in plain English for us 
his question may be rephrased for the um, undergraduate students here. If, if God is unchanging, then how do I expect my prayer to change God's behavior? Is that kind of a fair way to put it? Yeah, so I'm, I mean, you know, hasn't God already decided? And I think first, I'm, I'm going to not take issue with it because it's a classic word, immutability, uh, uh, this idea that God is unchanging, but ask, how is the Bible actually teaching that? Because, you know, there's this thing that some parts of what we might call, and again, I'm, I'm going to sound like a theology geek because I am, but what we might call classic theism have as much to do with Greek philosophy as they do with the teaching of the Bible. Because we always borrow from the greater knowledge base of our culture when we're trying to put things together because there's just some things that we think are true because our culture tells us they're true and it happens in every generation of the church. So when the Bible talks about the unchangingness of God, what does that mean? And what I would argue is what the Bible's talking about is that God's consistent. And it's God's consistency that causes him to behave in certain ways. So Jonah's complaint about, I knew that you would forgive these people if they just repented. Because you'd ask the question, well, God said he's going to destroy the city in, in 30 days. Didn't God know? I mean, can God change his mind? Is God allowed to relent if God is immutable? And the answer is yes, because God is consistent. God always, always leans towards mercy and everything that he does, because that's the heart of God. And if God was not going to forgive someone who asked for forgiveness, God would be inconsistent towards himself. You know, one of my favorite verses is in Timothy, uh, where it says that if we confess him before others, he'll confess us. If we deny him, he'll deny you know, us. If we are faithful to him, he'll be faithful to us. And I love this line. And if we are unfaithful to him, he will still be faithful to us because he cannot deny himself. It's just God's character. God can't help but be faithful to his people because that's just how God is. So now in prayer, and I'm asking God, what will you do here? What will you do there? Can you do this? Can you do that? And God responds to my prayer, is he being inconsistent or consistent with who he is? Now, that's one way of looking at it. Another way is this. When I come to God in prayer, and let me tell you first, I'm someone who prays for things. and I mean things, like not, you know, I want a car. No, I mean I, I pray for things to happen. You know, I, I pray for, you know, I have needs. I, I have I know a young man that, that is a friend of the family just tried to commit suicide. I'm going to God in prayer for this young man, right? I, I God, I, you got to do something for him, please. So there's prayer going on where I pray for things to happen. But I also recognize that the prayer is not this one-way exchange between me and God, but the ultimate result of the prayer is that as I remain in relationship with God, I get to the place where I always end with, your will be done. And that I find that God's will now becomes my will. And it's not necessarily the other way around. God, I want you to see things my way. It's no... God, here's what my way is. Here's what I'm asking for. Here's what breaks my heart that I believe concerns you because of how consistent you are with who you are. But at the end of the day, I have to see it your way. And that in prayer, I'm also the one who's being changed. You know, I mean, just like this, I got married. Got married late in life. And so that's part of the story is, you know, I got married when I was 37. And I got to tell you, when, when people who are old get married, it is a hard marriage because you're already set in your ways, 
right? So I get married, I'm 37, I gotta learn to do things differently, and I was fine before I got married, right? But now I gotta, I, the house has to look different because I got a wife. And I'm like, but it was fine before. <laughs> In that relationship, I change, right? It changes me. Why do, why do, why do married people start to look alike? It's, there's actually a reason for that, that over the years, they actually start mimicking each other. And part of the reason they look alike is they start, I find myself quoting my wife at times in weird ways because I hear her say this so much now I'm starting to say it. In relationship with God and prayer, I'm being changed. And God is the one who's the stronger partner. And that's a good thing because I was created in the image of God. And the more I reflect God, the more I become me. And less not me. Great, awesome. Yeah, we'll end with this last question. I'm Bryn. Um, my question is about the book of Revelation because often people see it as a very scary and intimidating book. But could you kind of explain it um, in a, like a lighter way and kind of like tell us about More like a comedy. The return. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Revelation, in fact, I'll, I'll tell you, this, this is the point of Revelation for me, the book. And, and by the way, first off, can I thank you for making it singular and not plural? You know, there, this is one of my pet peeves. There's so many people who will talk about the book as if it's the book of Revelations. It's not. It's the book of Revelation because it's, it's one revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's actually how the book begins, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Of course, that word revelation in Greek is where we get the word apocalypse. But apocalypse just means unveiling, right? It's the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus. And this actually becomes the point of the story where the major theme of revelation isn't judgment. The major theme of revelation is worship. You have a community, a series of communities that are being persecuted in Asia Minor, at, at least in Asia Minor. It's written to seven specific churches, and one theory is all of these churches were on a circuit of mail carriers, so it's actually written to where everyone in the community would eventually get uh, notice of the letter written to these seven churches who are being persecuted for their faith. And here's the thing, if you're a Christian and you have the entire world against you, it really raises the question, what if I'm the one who's wrong and they're the one who's right? And the letter is designed to show a revelation of Jesus that really when you come to worship in your community and there's no one outside of your church that recognizes that Jesus is someone worth serving and it seems like the whole world thinks you're crazy, What's actually happening in your little community of 20 Christians is actually what's real, and it's what's right, and it's what's going to last. So where does Revelation begin? You have this vision of Jesus that takes us to seven letters written to these seven churches to this other vision where you see the throne of God. And on the throne of God, you actually find, it says it's the Lion of Judah, but I looked and rather than seeing a lion, I saw a lamb that looked like it was slain. And everyone is worshiping because this is the throne room of God. Jesus is seated on the throne, and it's Jesus who has the right to open up the scroll that tells us the rest of the story. Here's how things are coming to an end. But the point repeatedly is that God is the one who is saving his creation. Every story of judgment is a story of God at work trying to save the whole. So even when there are things that fail, so you get to say Revelation 19 and you have the fall of Babylon and you have Babylon falling and people mourning, 
People mourn because they made money off Babylon, and it actually says we made money off slavery. And now that slavery is no more. Our human trafficking business is gone. Oh, what's going to happen to us? The very next chapter opens with the praise of God because you have finally ended this suffering for other people. What God is doing is he's not destroying the world. He's restoring the world. And revelation, which begins with the revelator in worship on the Lord's Day, that takes him to the throne room of God where all of creation is symbolically shown as being in worship around God's throne ends with heaven come to earth and now God's presence is with his people and we don't even have a need for a son because God himself gives us the light and now all of creation experiences God as he is it is one of the most powerful Beautiful, and again, if you think that you're the person hearing this who's being persecuted, and you're being told when you go into your little community and you act as if Jesus is the most important thing in the world, guess what? That will turn out to be the case at the end. What you experience here in this community of worship, that's what's true. Other people don't believe it, but it's not, truth isn't determined by democracy, it's determined by what's real. And at the end, it's Jesus who's real. Wow, that was so good. Maybe you need to put that on repeat and listen to it again. Um, I know that I was in the room, but I got so much out of that. Um, appreciate you listening in to the 20 Plus Podcast. Um, again, you can watch those videos on YouTube if you want to watch the version, or maybe there's a specific question that you want to share, maybe with a friend. There's actually a couple questions on YouTube as well that didn't make it on the podcast. So if you're just wanting more, make sure to check out the 20 plus YouTube channel. Um, And we'll be back with more culture combos, more podcasts coming soon, but we hope you have an amazing week and we'll see you back next time.